So let's welcome him down, Johnny Palmer. He's also, he uh, also uh, was part of a, they did a little filming project for Christian Vision for Men, and Johnny was serving as a flying instructor. Don't, have you moved jobs now, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll come on to that in a moment then. So Johnny was a flying instructor at the time, and um, Nathan Blackaby, who's CEO, I don't think you know this, Nathan Blackaby, who's CEO of CVM, said to me last week, I, I was taking a mick out of you, and, and he said, no, 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 he's a proper good pilot. And I went, really? And he went, no, no, he's a proper good one. I went, why? And he said, because we did aerobatics in formation. And he said, like, our propellers from the different aircraft were nearly hitting each other. And I went, no, that's because he's not a very good pilot. No, but <laughs> apparently you're amazing. So uh, why don't you tell everyone uh, where you're currently serving, where you have served, and uh, you've been involved in a lot of uh, active operations, haven't you? So why don't you just give people a, a military bio? Yeah, thanks. I just have to start off by saying the reason Nathan thinks I'm such a good pilot was because at the moment when we were upside down and he told me he was about to be sick, I managed to turn the aircraft around and stop him from being sick. That's, that's the only reason, because he didn't have to come out with a sick bag. So, um, so yeah, so I've been in the Air Force for um, coming up on 13 years now, uh, and uh, we've had about 8, 10 different postings, something like that. Uh, I've uh, flown about six different aircraft types, uh, um, primarily the Hercules. And I've done four tours of uh, four operational tours of Afghanistan, plus a couple of in and outs, um, Iraq and uh, Libya as well. So that's kind of my um, my operational bio. I then moved into the world of flying training. I really wanted to give something back. Um, I found flying training quite difficult. Not everyone does, but I found it quite difficult, and, um, and I wanted to be uh, the instructor who understood what that was like, as opposed to a lot of guys who kind of go, I've got 3,000 flying hours, and I can do it, why can't you? So we did that, uh, and um, that was great. We did four years at Cranwell, which is where um, I was running the defense, um, uh, the Armed Forces Christian Union men's stuff there, and I've just been posted into the defense intelligence world, so um, I'm now working at RF Waddington. I'm flying a desk, which is something new. Um, I didn't join the Air Force to fly a desk, but actually it's a really, really good job. I work with um, our signals intelligence uh, guys, which is pretty much everything that I can say about it. Talk to you later. So, um, and then back flying after that? Yeah, absolutely. So we're expecting a posting uh, next summer, uh, hopefully back down to RF Bryce Norton, where um, if I can convince my desk officer, I'll be on the A400, which is our brand new tactical uh, airlifter, so that I can get some, uh, get some time kicking parachutists and, and kit out of the back. And um, obviously not always an RF pilot, so you had a previous job before that, and not always been a follower of Christ. Just, I don't know if you want to give a potted bio of that journey, and then just go straight into what you're going to bring, and I'll leave it with you. Let's pray for Johnny. Father, thank you for this man, great brother in Christ, good mate. Pray you bless him, God, as he blesses us. And pray, God, you speak to our hearts this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. It's all yours. Amen. Thanks, mate. Yeah, so I um, wasn't always a follower of Jesus. I, um, I uh, uh, grew up um, in, uh, in a Christian home up until uh, about, the age of, uh, um, about the age of five. Um, where we found out my dad had a bit of a dark secret and he ended up going to prison for a number of years, um, which completely ripped the family uh, apart. Now, in my five-year-old logic at the time, I kind of went, yeah, I'm not, I can't believe in a loving God and what's happened to my family and what my dad's done. So I completely, uh, I completely chucked it away. But I always felt this kind of big spiritual gap, if you like, um, and um, I pursued um, kind of religion after religion, faith after faith, and, and kind of orthodoxy after orthodoxy, looking for something, looking for, for anything. And I went 
went through pretty much every Eastern religion and, um, yeah, until I eventually ended up in witchcraft. I met a girl called Sarah, um, and she seemed to have real control over her life, and, and I thought, this is great. Control is what I want. So, so I got involved in witchcraft, and I, uh, um, I got heavily, heavily into that. And it came to a point where I realized that actually I was, in, I was really in deep, really in deep, and I, and I didn't like where I was. I didn't like what I'd become. Um, and I went to my mum, who was still going to the church that I'd, uh, that I'd been brought up in. Um, and I said to her, look, I just don't even know what to do. And she said, well, maybe it's not about having control. Maybe you've got it completely 180 degrees out. Maybe it's about relinquishing control to somebody else. Maybe that's what it's about. So I ended up going and speaking to her pastor. Um, and then um, the rest, as they say, uh, is history. I've been following uh, Jesus now for uh, a long time, probably coming up on 20 years. So more than half my life I've been following Jesus, which, and it has completely, completely changed me. Um, I'll get into a little bit of who I was, hopefully later on, but, um, um, but I wasn't a very nice character. Um, I was dodging prison because I wasn't getting caught, and I was doing some pretty nasty things to people. I, I wasn't a nice guy. And um, anyway, so that was that. Um, I then uh, um, met my wonderful wife, uh, Hayley, um, the most uh, um, uh, romantic of locations in, in a kind of corner of a car park in, in uh, Grantham, Morrison's. It smelled of wee. It was, yeah, it's not the kind of place we go back to to remember, but it was good. Um, and then we, um, um, we ended up getting married. We moved to Leicester and I became a psychiatric nurse, which was a really, really interesting job. And he's word interesting. Um, it was fantastic, and it was great getting to serve people, but I came to a point where actually I realized that my heart of hearts, I always wanted to be in the military, and that's how I ended up um, where I am today. And it's a real honor to be here with you guys today. It really, really is, for three main reasons. Um, uh, the first is, not a lot of you, in fact, probably only Carl will know this, but we were very nearly a part of your church family. About 18 months ago, we were looking to leave the Air Force and buy a house here. Uh, to, uh, to come join you guys, and again, I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. The second reason uh, is, um, as I said, Hayley and I, we've, we've had about eight to ten different houses. Um, we've had about, therefore, eight to ten different churches. And as soon as I walked in today, I just had this real sense that it was like this little church, the little church, was medium-sized church, that we went to in, um, um, in Shrewsbury when I was doing helicopter training. And... Um, uh, it was, it was just like this. It was in almost all ways. It met in a school um, that you could just feel the warmth. You could feel the, the family. And um, in this, this whole thing, uh, they just ooze love for each other. And we learned more about Jesus. We loved more about serving people. We, looked, uh, we lived, uh, learned more about um, uh, looking after um, the, the least and the lost. And more about the spiritual gifts that, that, that Christ bestows on us. Um, in that place than anywhere. So like, as soon as I walked in, I just felt that. It's a real honor. And finally, of course, it's an honor to be invited to talk on the 100th anniversary of the armistice. That's 100 years since the Great War, the war to end all wars finished. And I think one of the issues that we can have around armistice is that we make it all about World War I and maybe World War II, and we sometimes forget the people that have served in the conflicts um, uh, since. So I saw a couple of people with medals on coming in. I think I saw a, a, a RAF Long Service and Good Conduct Medal. Who here, just put your hands up briefly, and I hate to do this, this very American thing, but, but who here either is serving, has served, or importantly, is a family member of somebody who served because I think they have it far worse than we do when we go on debt. So if you would just stick your hands up very quickly. Can I ask, there's actually loads of you, which means I'm going to have to be really careful about how I talk because you'll know when I'm talking rubbish. Can everybody just give these guys and girls a round of applause, please? (laughs) 
So I want to talk a little bit about God uh, at war, which is, could be taken in several ways. I want, to look at, uh, I want to look at where God is in war, what kind of wars God gets involved in. I'm going to do this through, uh, through a guy called Gideon. So Gideon was a judge uh, in um, the Old Testament. So the story goes as uh, the Israelites left Egypt, they wandered through the desert for 40 years, and then they went into what we now know as Israel, and they took it over. And um, they didn't quite do exactly what God had told them to. They didn't take over the whole area that God had told them to take over. Um, and because of that, they end up in this cycle whereby um, they'd be doing what God told them to and everything would be fine. And then they'd just get a little bit lax and they'd stop. And then they'd get invaded either by the tribes that, that were still in, um, in and around Israel or um, the nations uh, bordering Israel. Um, and um, then they'd be oppressed for a while and then they'd cry out to God for help and then God would come and help them. And every time that happened, God raised up what we call a judge. So Gideon was one of these judges. So if you've got a Bible, um, it's three chapters. I'm not reading through all three chapters. So uh, if you want to try and keep up, you can, um, but you don't have to. Starting at Judges 6. So Judges 6, uh, 1 to 5. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites, because the power of Midian was so oppressive. The Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in the mountain clefts, caves and strongholds. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither the sheep nor the cattle nor the donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So this is a pretty bleak picture. This is, this is not, not a great picture. And you have to wonder, looking at it, whether they realized they, they were actually at war. Now, I remember the first time that I went to war. In fact, I remember every detail about the first time I went to war. I've been training for five years um, to, to get to that point. And I remember sitting in the TriStar. Um, some of you will have had the misfortune of having been on a TriStar, and for which I apologize. Um, it was a 1950s, 60s built um, bunch of rivets that just rattled its way into, uh, into a war zone. It was shocking. Anyway, so we, um, we come in over Pakistan. Uh, I'm in the back. I'm not flying. Uh, and... Um, all the lights go off, we've got our body armor on, our helmets on. Imagine sitting in an economy class on Ryanair and um, you, you're all kind of like this because you've got all your kit on. All the lights go out and they throw you down as fast as possible to try and, uh, you, you, you try and get down in as little distance as possible and as fast as possible so that the enemy's got as little time as possible to engage the aircraft. So we did that, and we rattled in, and then we, we got to Camp Bastion, and I had this period four-day RSOI. Again, some of you will have gone through RSOI, which is a course designed to remind you of everything that you've done. You, uh, day one, you get up, you put all your kit on, and you do a desert march to make sure that you can cope with the heat. You then go and uh, fire your rifle and your pistol to make sure that your accuracy is good enough to put you out on the uh, front line. You end up doing first aid and trauma and all sorts of stuff, four days of purgatory, frankly. And then um, we got on to, uh, um, got forwarded to Kandahar, which was where I was based. And I remember the first flight that I ever did in theatre. My call sign was Thumper 2-1. I think the call sign Thumper was because they knew how hard my landings were. Um, and Because um, they were. And um, uh, we ended up, we went into, went into ops and we went for intelligence brief. We sat through um, every 
engagement that an aircraft had had in Afghanistan over the last 48 hours. Every time something had been shot at, we went over the areas that we were going into, the threat levels that were there, the weapon systems we were expecting to, um, to see there with the enemy. We then went and got our body armor, our weapons, we canceled our ammunition, we put it into our survival waistcoats, and we sent that ahead to the aircraft. And then we went to outbrief. And because it was my first time in theatre, I got absolutely nailed by the captain. He wanted every code word, he wanted every escape plan, he wanted to know what I would be doing if we got shot down, we wanted to you know what I would do with the crew if we got shot down and he wasn't there to take command. He got absolutely nailed. I knew that I was at war. There was no way that I could have not known that I was at war. But I don't think these guys did know that they were at war. They had their heads in the sand. They were in a situation whereby they were, where they were hiding from the enemy rather than engaging them. Now, we're at war. The Bible tells us there's a spiritual battle going on, constantly going on between um, the followers of Jesus and an enemy, which it tells us prowls around like a lion, looking to dislocate us, looking to devour us. Sometimes we want to bury our heads in the sand about this whole thing because, frankly, it's a difficult thing to grasp. And... Um, it, it's not the sort of thing you want to face up to. But you need to ask yourself, why wouldn't you stick your head above the trench? Why wouldn't you be all out? And I think one of the reasons that, you, that we're not is because to do it, you really need to have trust. You need to have a huge amount of trust. Next slide, please. So um, I'm just going to go into uh, Judges 6, 11 to 24 bits of, so try and keep up if you can. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, uh, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now at this point, Gideon has a moan. He goes, um, well, I'm sorry, but the Lord is not with me because look what's happening to the nation. Look at it. We're, we're, we're invaded. I'm threshing wheat in a wine press. So this is a job that needs to be done outside because you thresh the wheat and the, the bad stuff the wind takes away. Uh, he's doing it inside, so it's not actually going to work. And, um, and he goes, so what you're saying is rubbish. I don't trust you at all. And uh, he then goes, and even if that was the case, which it's not, God is not with me and I'm not a mighty warrior. I'm the smallest clan. I'm the least family in the clan and I'm the smallest guy uh, uh, in in my family. So why? Why would God be with me? And um, anyway, he has this conflab with, uh, with the angel of the Lord, and um, eventually the angel kind of gets, gets his point over, and Gideon goes, look, if I have found favor in your eyes, give me a sign that's really you talking to me. Don't go away. I'll come back and bring an offering and set it before you. The angel of the Lord, uh, so he goes and gets the offering, he comes back, and the angel says to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. The angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with uh, the tip of his staff. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread, and the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Alas, sovereign Lord, I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. And to this, stand, to, sorry, to this day, it stands in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. So Gideon had gone through this process of being utterly untrusting in God. 
utterly untrusting in anything that he said, any of the promises that he has. And he went from there, and he went to a, a place of complete trust, where he was convinced he was going to die. And as soon as God says, that's not going to happen, he goes, okay, I believe that, and I believe it so much, I'm going to make a stand, and I'm going to build an altar to say that, 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 that that's the case. Um, I had this, uh, this one situation, this one captain when I was on debt, um, and I had a similar situation with him in that um, we were one day doing an engines running offload. The idea is that sometimes in some places you don't want to be on the ground for that long. So you land as soon as you put the brakes on, you open the back door, in fact you open the back door before you put the brakes on, um, and you just throw all the troops out and you kick all the, the, the cargo out and then occasionally there'll be um, a low loader there to then throw some more cargo on and, and you spend as minimum time on the ground as possible. So we were sat there in the aircraft and, and he just turned to me whilst they're doing this down the back. He turns to me and goes, so JP, I, uh, I hear you don't believe in dinosaurs. I don't believe in dinosaurs? Says, yeah, yeah, somebody told me you don't believe in dinosaurs. I'm like, well, find it pretty difficult to disbelieve something you dig up out of the ground. And besides anything else, our son uh, at that time was at the stage where you have to take him to a new museum with new dinosaurs every other month because he's just absolutely loving dinosaurs. So anyway, this prompted this whole conversation about what is Christianity? What do I believe? What don't I believe? What, what does the Bible actually say? What doesn't it say? And we got into this routine whereby um, every day where we went flying, we would spend a couple of hours, he'd pick a topic um, to try and quiz me on, and then we'd talk about it. And it gets to a point where we do that for about four weeks. So there was a lot of topics covered. We'd done how did Noah fit all the animals in the ark? We'd done how do you look for um, a global flood in geology? We'd done uh, all, all sorts of stuff and all the detailed theology. You know, how can you have a God uh, who does and allows this sort of stuff? So we got to a point where I said, OK, Beaker. And we called him Beaker because he looked like a Muppet. Um, <laughs> We said, all right, Beaker, um, what's tomorrow? And he said, well, there's, there's no point. And what do you mean there's no point? I'm, I'm game. And he says, no, there's no point because, um, frankly, you've answered everything I've got. I, I don't have anything left. I was like, yes, winner. So, um, so then on the last, fast forward two weeks, um, and we're on the last day of the debt, and we've been flying over um, somebody's house for 10 hours in a circle, um, waiting, watching, um, in, in order to wait for the right time to be able to call in an airstrike on this guy. And, um, and it had been a long, boring day. We'd done lots of chatting about not an awful lot. And uh, um, as, we're, uh, as we're just heading back to base, he says, oh, have you ever been zero-G surfing? I said, what do you mean, zero-G surfing? He said, you know, like astronaut, zero-G surfing. And I went, no, why? So you see, um, the... Whenever you fly on an aircraft, and you will have experienced it, whenever you go on a, um, a roller coaster or an aircraft, you'll, you will have experienced negative G. Whenever you push the nose down, you get some level of negative G. But um, if you're flying well, anything other than probably Ryanair, then they do it nice and gently. So you don't feel it. You probably go down to about 0.8 G or something like that. So you don't really feel it. However, being a military aircraft, the Hercules has got a much bigger range that we can fly in. So... Um, um, we could fly for, uh, at about minus 1G, I think, for about two minutes. So he said, oh, unstrap, go down the back, and, uh, uh, and I'll, uh, and I'll uh, uh, show you what it's like. Fantastic. So, um, so he did. It's probably one of the best experiences of my life. I spent about 45 seconds a minute just floating around the back of a Hercules. It was fantastic. Anyway, so, um, so we did that, and uh, I came back up, and the beaker was as white as a sheet. He, really, like, he was really white. So what's up? Without boring you with the details, the, um, the Hercules has got various different um, limitations depending on how much cargo we've got, how much fuel we've got, all that sort of stuff. And um, the computer was in the wrong configuration, so the computer thought that we had overstressed. 
which meant that when we got back, we were going to hand the engineers the data card, and they were going to want to know why we'd overstressed the aircraft. Now, we hadn't done anything wrong unless we'd overstressed the aircraft, in which case we'd be in a lot of trouble. So he was really, really unhappy about this. And we get down on the ground, we send the engineer off with a data card, and we go back to take all the weapons, body armor back in and to, uh, to give the intelligence brief back to the intelligence officer. And... Um, and he's just getting more and more agitated about this. We, we leave to go and pick up the engineer, and he, he sat in the front of this. We had this like old beat-up Toyota Hilux, and he sat in the front, and I'm sat in the back, and he just turns to me and goes, JP, you've got to pray. I went, what? He goes, you've got to pray about this. That's the only thing that's going to work now to get me out of trouble is you praying. And I went, I'm not being funny, mate, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure that my God's the kind of God that gets people out of trouble. Um, and um, and if, if it's that important to you, you pray about it. So he went, all right. And he did. And he then spent about 45 seconds with his head bowed in the front. It was comical. And, um, and, and, um, and, and he prayed. We get into the engineer's um, office, and the engineer was absolutely livid. He was an angry Welshman, as it was, and um, he was hangry. We'd been in the aircraft for 10 hours with one pizza between four of us. Um, and um, uh, oh, he, he was so angry. And Beak went up to him and went, what's wrong? He goes, the, the data card's corrupted. The data, there's, no, there's no data in it. I'm going to have to put in 10 hours worth of mission data manually. He was livid. Beaker turns to me and goes, it's a sign. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not sure it's a sign, mate. He goes, it's a sign. I, th I think I probably know what a sign is. And this probably is, it's a sign. All right, Beaker, it's a sign. Fine. And we were having a chat about it later on. And I, I, I really wanted to get to the bottom of where this had come from. And what he said to me was really interesting. He said that he trusted my God could do this because he trusted me. And that really brings up this question of who do you trust? Gideon went from a position of just not trusting God at all to being absolutely convinced that what God said was going to happen. Now in the spiritual battles that you and I face, we also have to have trust. And it begs the question, who do you trust? What do you trust in? Do you trust in things that are temporal, like money or relationships that could, might fail? Do you trust in your health? Or do you trust in something that's eternal, that no matter what happens, will be there? And I think it can be hard to make that, that, that leap of trust, because if you do fully trust, if you fully trust, then you've got to be all in. Next slide, please. You've got to be all in. In. War is not something that you can do half-heartedly. You've got to do it all in. So if we go to uh, Judges 7, 1 to um, 8, and I'll skip through this a little bit again. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and he got this nickname because in a bit we've skipped over, he went all in and he ended up smashing down the altars to uh, his family altars to false gods. So um, early in the morning, uh, Gideon and all his men camped in the spring of Harod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. Uh, would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left whilst 10,000 remained. Two thirds of the army left because they were scared. Two-thirds of the army left because they were scared. And I think that's probably a fair, fair, fair reflection. There's a great story, a great story, about um, a, uh, a trooper, uh, I don't know what regiment, um, who was in Afghanistan, in the early days of Afghanistan, when there wasn't an awful lot of administrators there, which must have been great. And, um, and they, um, uh, he was really winding up his warrant officer because uh, he just didn't want to go out. He was, he was scared. 
as you'd imagine. And uh, the warrant officer went, why don't you just go home? Anyway, two weeks later, when they realized they hadn't seen him for two weeks, they went looking, and he had actually gone home. It was fantastic. So I think this is probably a fair, fair reflection um, of, uh, of what would happen. Now, the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Um, and he goes through this process of um, whittling them down. In fact, this is where we get the phrase, thin them out from. So anybody in the military, thin out, this is where it comes from. It's from this, uh, this Bible verse. So he goes and does this thing, and he ends up with 300 men re- remaining. 300. And the Lord said to Gideon, uh, verse 7, with 300 men that have lapsed, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but he kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of others. And now the camp of Midian lay below them in the valley. Now this was really important for God. Really, really important. It was key that he was known as the reason this happened. It was key that he was um, known as the person who had created this victory. And what he didn't want was to have a huge army go up against another huge army and one of them go, yeah, it was me, when God knew he was the one who was in it. And the reason for that is because you are known for what you are all in for. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, you are known for what you are all in for. In your workplaces, your clubs, college, whatever, you'll be known for what you are all in for. Um, A number of you will know um, the Bible series uh, notes manual that um, Carl wrote a few years ago. Um, And uh, I used to take those to Afghanistan. Every time I went to Afghanistan, I'd take take one of those books. And every time I went flying, um, I would find um, find a space and just have five minutes uh, with God to make sure that I was right in front of God and right in front of my uh, family. Because frankly, every time that you got airborne in a war zone, it, it could be your last. So I wanted to make sure um, that, I was, um, that I was just in the right place for that eventuality. And, um, and uh, I, I didn't hide it from the other guys, but it was my thing. I just did it kind of quietly to myself. What I used to do is we had a crew alarm. We all lived in this tiny box of a, a porter cabin in Kandahar. Um, four blokes, it stank, it was horrendous. And um, we used to um, get up on the crew alarm, go and get a shower, and then, and then go flying. I used to set my alarm about five, ten minutes early, so I could get a shower, and then when they're all in the shower, I'll be there, and I'll just have my, my time um, with God. That was the only time by myself I got um, at all. Anyway, one morning, I woke up, and I realized that the loadmaster, i.e. the guy down the back who kicks parachutists and kit out, um, he, uh, he'd gone to the gym. He got up really early and gone to the gym. So I'm in there, and I'm sitting down on the bed, my towel, reading this, uh, reading this thing. That's a great image, I'm sure, sorry. Um, so um, I'm reading this, uh, reading this thing, and the loadmaster's there, uh, drying himself off. Now, just to give you an even worse image, the loadmaster was um, a, a behemoth of a Scottish rugby player. And being the archetype rugby player, he had absolutely no shame whatsoever. So this guy is there totally naked, inventing flossing, uh, whilst I'm trying to do my, uh, um, trying to do my um, Bible study. And, and he looks over at me, and in a, in a gruff Scots accent, which I'll probably get badly wrong, he goes, Hey, JP. What's the prayer for today? And I went, what? He goes, what's the prayer for today? You do it every day. What's the prayer for today? And I went, that wasn't gruff enough. But um, I went, um, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And uh, uh, I went, well, it's, it, it's this. And it couldn't have worked out any better. So it was, um, it was this uh, mission aviation pilot talking about the importance of trusting your engineers, the importance of trusting your, your eternal 
engineer. And so it was something that this guy, as an aviator, could totally, totally get. So I went, well, you know, th this is the text. And he goes, yeah, but what's the prayer? So I, I started reading the prayer. I said, you know, dear Lord, and as, as I said that, the door opens and the rest of the crew walks in to see a very, very naked rugby player making sure that he was exceptionally dry and me kind of hunched over my bed <laughs> praying in his general direction. And, um, and the, uh, the captain just goes, you know what, I, I don't even want to know. I... And, and this spread like wildfire around all the crews, you know, um, it, it, was, it was a joke, but it was a good joke for, for a long, long time. And what I hadn't realized was that I was known by everybody for doing these Bible studies. And actually, the rest of the crew quite liked the fact that I was praying every time we got airborne. They thought that would probably work out well for them as well, seeing as how they were in the same crate as I was. So I realized that you're known for what you're all in for. I could have easily just not done that because I was in tight confines. Everybody would see me. I could have easily not done it. But I decided to because, frankly, I am all in for God. Why wouldn't you be all in for God? With some of the stuff that I did before I met Jesus and the person that I was before I met Jesus compared to the person that I am becoming now, why wouldn't you be absolutely all in for God? But it's very easy to be all in for something else. And so I really want to challenge you. What are you known for? What are you known for around, around your, your place of work or, or college or wherever? Are you known for um, chasing money or are you known for um, wanting that promotion more than anything else and being willing to do anything to get it? Um, are you known for being the person who is constantly looking for a boyfriend or girlfriend because you just can't be alone? Um, that was me when I was at college, by the way. Um, and what, what is it? What is it that you are known for? And then I just want you to ask yourself, what is it you want to be known for? What is it you want to be known for? Because what you want to be known for is what you will be all in for. And what you're all in for is what you will be known as. And uh, Hayley and I had a, a moment about, um, probably about two months ago, three months ago. We were down at Windsor Castle. We were... Um, in the uh, in St George's Ca Chapel at Windsor Castle, we'd just been to an event, um, and we were having drinks in the cloister, which I've recently found out is a square that monks walk around. I had no idea, but um, we were in this cloister, um, and um, behind the drink stand there was this gravestone, and um, we'd recently been asking this question in our, in our home group: what What do we want it to say on our gravestone? And this this gravestone, it was massive. It was about that big, embedded in the wall, um, and it said, uh, "This bloke." He loved his family, he loved his wife, he loved his kids, he'd do anything for them, he'd do anything for the poor, he'd do anything for the lost, he'd do anything for the least. He did all of this, and he did it all in the name of Jesus Christ, on the wall in Windsor Castle. It was fantastic. I was gutted because, because it's the Queen's personal chapel, she doesn't like people taking photos. I really wanted a photo of that. That's what I wanted to say on my gravestone. I wanted to say, he did this, 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 and this, and he did it all in the name of Jesus Christ. Because what you are all in for, you will be known for. Now, going back to the fact that we are all at war, one of the things that happens in war is you get into scraps. It's standard. So 
We need to be willing to expect the fight. And this is why we need to know what we're all in for. Because when you're in the scrap, you need to know why you're doing it. So uh, in um, Judges 8, I'll come on to a second. So what's happened in the interim is um, Gideon's taken his 300 guys and he's gone and uh, he's... Um, not attack the camp. He's basically convinced the uh, enemy through an um, amazing piece of what we would call dislocation of expectation. He convinces the enemy that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of them in the middle of the night. They're not expecting it. They get up. Um, they, uh, they run wilds. They end up killing each other because it's dark and they're not expecting it. And then the remains of the army um, escape. So Gideon is now chasing the remains of the army of the Midianites out of Israel. So in uh, Judges 8, chapter, sorry, um, verse 4, it says, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, Give my troops some bread. They're worn out, and I'm uh, still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. And then verse 6, but the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah in your possession? Why should we give your uh, bread to your troops? Then skipping to verse 8, from here he went up to Peniel and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Sukkoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. So what's happened is he's left Israel, he's now gone out of the borders of Israel, um, and he's asking these people for help, and they're turning around saying, absolutely no way. We are not helping you, you're one of those Israelite types. Eventually Gideon catches up with the, uh, the retreating army, um, he sacks their camp, and he captures the um, enemy. He's, he's, he's got it, he's gone, he's done the pursuit he's got what he was after and he gets these two kings and he says to them what kind of men did you kill at Tabor Tabor was another battle where the Israelites had lost and these two guys answered men like you each with the bearing of a prince Gideon replied these were my brothers they were the sons of my own mother as surely as the Lord lives if you had spared their lives I would not kill you Sometimes when we read um, passages like this, and sometimes uh, it's just in life, we think that we sh- everything should be a win. Everything should be a win. It's this massive lie that we're brought into, that everything should be a win. Wars are made up of many battles. You win some battles, you lose some battles. But you've got to be willing to accept the fight and expect the fight. I said earlier on that um, we were very nearly here um, with you guys, and... Basically, the story behind that is uh, I got a phone call from Carl. He uh, offered me a job in one of the um, many pies that he has um, his fingers in. And we prayed about it. And we thought, yeah, this is absolutely the right thing. It's time to leave the Air Force. It's time to go um, and, uh, and, and do this thing. Yeah, it was fantastic. We had loads of people uh, absolutely, um, totally behind us. This is probably the longest running and the most difficult spiritual battle I have ever faced. And more than anything else, it has absolutely convinced me um, that there is a, a real and tangible spiritual battle in this world. More than anything that I experienced in witchcraft or when I left witchcraft, which wasn't that nice. So within a week of calling Carl and saying, I'm in, my daughter got sick. She can't be with us uh, today. Um, she's elsewhere. But... Um, one of our daughters got sick, and she went from being um, a happy, bubbly eight-year-old whose um, favorite pastimes were cross-country running um, and rock climbing to being in a wheelchair in about two months. And um, I remember the first day that we went and picked up the wheelchair. We picked it up from Leicester, and um, we went into the shopping center in Leicester, and I remember everybody looking at her. And I remember there was one kid, and he was too young to know. He, he, was, he was genuinely too young to know. But I remember this one kid pointed and laughed. 
It was horrific. It was the worst thing I'd ever gone through. And this just kept getting worse and worse. Um, by July um, last year, um, we had an appointment with a consultant pediatrician who said, I'm doing a bunch of tests. We'll get the results in two weeks. You need to understand that the results of these tests may not be good. In fact, they may be very, very bad. And um, we went through this situation um, and we just kept praying. We, oh, no, we, we, we've, we've got to go, we've got to, we, you know, we're doing this thing. You know, and we were almost treating them like separate issues rather than treating this one like a, um, like a spiritual battle. And it got worse and worse and worse. And I remember uh, around this time last year, early December last year, um, the medics sat down and said, you can't leave in March. So we were, all, we were all, all ready to leave. We were ready to get a house here. We were going in, in, the, uh, in the Easter holidays. And they said, you can't leave. You can't move her. Her treatment is going to take years, potentially. You have to stay where you are. And at this point, I had a total breakdown. A total breakdown. I got taken offline, naturally, because why would you want a, a crazy pilot? But I had a, uh, I had a I had a breakdown. I ended up being taken offline. I was taken off work. I just couldn't see um, a way through. I couldn't see um, how to get through this battle. It was absolutely shocking. Wars are long and wars are hard. You win some battles, you lose some battles. The war for us as Christians is won, but we still have to face the battles. Think about um, World War Two, uh, World War One. Sorry, four years in the trenches, four years of rot and decay, mud up to your uh, up to your knees. They're hard. They're hard. And because they're hard, you have to keep your focus. You have to know why it is you're doing what it is. You have to understand why it is you do what you do. Um, can we have that video, please? So um, often people ask me how I can be a Christian and be in the military, um, why I feel it's okay. Sorry, could you pause for a second? Thank you. Um, and, um, and I really struggle to articulate it. So... Um, about five years ago, when we first went into Syria, Save the Children produced this video. Um, and this, for me, said this, this completely explains why I do what I do. Happy birthday to you. Make a wish. Granny. Hello. Have you done your homework? Adam. For a general strike. Ready or not. Here he comes. Five ammunition against. Deserve to get shot. Nice day, ma'am. Fair strikes on rebel position. We are going to stay. Tapping. Go. Have a fountain in Richmond.
that's why I do what I do. That's, that's, that, that's it in a nutshell. There are people out there who um, cannot look after themselves against people who would take their, their homes, their livelihoods, their lives at the end of a gun. And I honestly believe that the British government and the Royal Air Force um, is a force for good. And that's why I do what we do, what I do. But equally in my Christian life, I've got to understand why I fight that fight too. So after the war um, between the, uh, the Israelites uh, and the uh, Midianites, the Israelites said to Gideon in uh, chapter 8, verse 22, rule over us, your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He had his focus. He knew what this was all about. He knew why he was doing it. It wasn't about him. It was about God. Our spiritual war is real. It is absolutely real. And the situation with my daughter absolutely confirms that for me. And just like it said on the end of that video, just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not happening. Just because you might not see it in that tangible, visceral way that you do with real war does not mean that there is not a spiritual war going in, going on. And it's keeping that focus through times like the situation with my daughter, keeping my eyes on the prize, looking at Jesus Christ that kept me going through. And I realized that the reason I'd had a breakdown over the months of November, December last year was because I'd stopped looking to Jesus and I was navel gazing, trying to figure out how I was going to fix this, how I was going to resolve the situation, how I was going to look after my family. And I realized that I couldn't. I couldn't. And the moment that I, um, that I got myself out of that hole, um, the moment I looked back up towards Jesus, things started changing. And sadly, it did mean that um, I couldn't come to be with you guys. We couldn't come to be with you guys. And our daughter is still uh, undergoing treatment. She's about 18 months in, something like that. Um, but as soon as I took my focus off myself and my problems and looked towards Jesus, that's what happened. You have to keep the focus in your Christian life. You have to know why you're doing it. And um, in that, you will you'll find it so much more easier to trust, so much more easier to be all in. Now, I'm in the war. I am an evangelist and I'm a teacher. That means that I tell people about Jesus and then I train them up for the war that they are going to fight. No one ever said that war was easy. Nobody ever said that. And nobody ever said that following Jesus is going to be easy. But it is worth it. Absolutely worth it. Because Jesus took me from being a guy who um, I ended up getting sent to a school for children who couldn't be left in mainstream education, which was basically an evil genius school. It, you shouldn't put that many bad people together. Um, so as it stands at the moment, 50% of my class are currently in jail. That gives you an indication of, of, of what the school was like. Um, we, I, I ended up after school um, effectively joining a gang. Um, I got into some really, really nasty stuff. Um, and then... Um, I don't want to go into too much detail, but I then, um, I then found Jesus. And immediately on finding Jesus, I went from being a scally to being a saint in like 24 hours. I just completely changed my life. The people who knew me before cannot believe I do the job that I do now and that I am the person that I am now because they can't see how I've made that transition. 
Why wouldn't I want that for my mates? Why wouldn't, if fighting a war, fighting a couple of battles is what it takes to convince my mates about the reality of Jesus Christ and what he's done for their lives, why wouldn't I do that? So, that's why I do it. That's why I keep my focus on Jesus. And that's why I encourage you all to focus on Jesus. So just to wrap this up then, I just want to remind us all, we are at war. You may see it, you may not. But whether you believe it or not, you are. And you need to ask yourselves, are you going to stand up to that war? Or are you going to wait until the enemy is kicking down your front door? You have to have trust. You've got to be all in. And you've got to do that because there's going to be a fight. And you've got to expect that. Most importantly, you've got to keep your eyes on the prize. You know... You've got to know why you're doing what you're doing. Through persevering in war, we can change this world. We're going to change it one life at a time, one situation at a time, but we can change this world.